For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have made the prophetic word made more sure. You will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. There's nothing like an eyewitness account of an event that will convince us and convict us of the truth. If we are the eyewitness, then it's very easy to declare that what happened really did happen. When you see it, you know it's true. If we are listening to an eyewitness, eyewitness account of an event or a testimony, then we can determine early on and with surety the event happened the way it's being described. Unless, of course, the eyewitness is lying to us or bending it and describing it. But generally, when you're listening to an eyewitness account, you tend to think that it's true. Don't you get the impressions from St. Luke's gospel account of the powerful scene of the transfiguration of Christ in the gospel? If you doubt the veracity of that scene that is the transfiguration, keep in mind that it's not just Luke who has it in his gospel. The account appears in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which gives it another kind of stamp of approval that it actually happened. The fact that they all included it in their accounts of the good news of Jesus Christ, albeit in slightly different ways, I take as a testimony of its authenticity. On top of that, we do indeed have an eyewitness account in St. Peter testifying in his second letter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we heard this voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word made more sure. We were there, we heard God's voice, so it's true. We had the prophetic word made more sure. The same word that was being revealed from the previous millennium before God came into the world as Jesus Christ. The transfiguration reveals this Jesus as the continuation of God showing himself through the covenant of the law, 
and the words spoken through the prophets. What the covenant law is talking about is the law of God revealed through Jesus Christ. What the prophets are talking about all through the New Testament, they're prophesying Jesus Christ. There it is. At the transfiguration, we have Moses and Elijah. Moses delivering and the bearer of the law. Elijah, the chief prophet, the prophet of all the prophets, there with Jesus. So it's a continuing revelation. We learn that the same revealed word continues from the Old Testament right through the New Testament in Jesus. Can you imagine the wonder and the law rising, the wonder and the awe, as well as the law, rising in Peter, James, and John when they saw the two heroes of their faith, Moses and Elijah, the faith of their people appearing before them. They were in the presence of greatness. To heighten, as if St. Peter testifies in writing, to make more sure, Jesus is glorified before them. As Jesus is talking with the two giants of the faith, his clothing becomes dazzling white, the gospel says. At least this version of the gospel says it. I prefer the King James Version that says glistering. Can you imagine someone's clothes when they're glistering? Wouldn't you like to see that? In the progression of God's self-revelation over the previous 1,000 years of history of God's chosen people, Israel, and the law, and the major and minor prophets, never has he shown forth as he did in Jesus' glorious revelation, as he did on top of the Mount of the Transfiguration. When we look back over how God reveals himself, we learn that his revelation is, and you can remember this from the alliteration, progressive, particular, and perfect. Particular in that there is one people, the nation of Israel, through whom and in whom he's chosen as his own. His presence is more particular in the tabernacle carried by the Israelites as they made their way through the desert for 40 years before they came into the promised land. Still, the particularity is there in the temple when they would meet God, worship him, offer him the appropriate sacrifices. Their focus and center of worship is repeated in the design of the temple at Jerusalem. This long and hallowed history of God's revelation is shown in Christ, both in its particularity and its universality. That's in Jesus. The perfect revelation of God is there, yet only revealed to Peter, James, and John. They get a glimpse of glory. The rest will have to wait for the revelation is full and true, and yet it's not the right time for everyone to receive it.
And it may not be the right time for all to see the glory of God. Jesus, the Savior of the world, is yet to accomplish the work for which his Father sent him. He's yet to overcome sin on the cross. He's yet to beat down death by his resurrection. He hasn't done that yet, so they have to wait. He does answer a key question, though, in this transfiguration on top of the mountain. He asked the question eight days earlier, but who do you say that I am? The disciples, after being sent out on their mission to preach and heal, and after John the Baptist's death, who prepared the way for Jesus' earthly ministry, after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and the ultimate question every follower of Jesus must answer, who do you say that I am? Peter answered the question correctly, with great courage, Peter's confession. He answered it with courage and confidence. And Jesus said to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, Peter's answer is fact-checked by the transfiguration. At these three of the disciples received word directly from God the Father that what Peter had declared before anyone is true. On the Mount of the Transfiguration, eight days after Peter's confession, they hear a voice from heaven, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. Everything that needs to be revealed is revealed. This Christ is God. He is the Lamb that will take away the sin of the world. And that's the topic of Jesus' conversation with Moses and Elijah. Remember, the gospel that we just heard says Moses and Elijah were there, not just appearing, they were talking to Jesus. Jesus was talking to them. The gospel says Moses and Elijah spoke of Jesus' departure. What is that? Jesus' departure. Well, if you look it up in Greek, it's departure is exodus. He's speaking of Christ's departure from Jerusalem, his exodus from Jerusalem. And what happens at Jerusalem? The rest of the rest of his work, his crucifixion, his resurrection. This makes it clear that Jesus' upcoming death on the cross at Calvary will free men from the, the slavery of sin. Just as the Exodus freed the slaves of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. That's what they're talking about. The transfiguration, revealing Christ as if reigning in glory, must have really moved the hearts of Peter, James, and John. Because Peter gets excited. He's so excited about seeing this vision that's actually true, that he wants to make three booths, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Can you imagine how their faith must have been strengthened and confirmed 
by just getting a glimpse of Christ's glory. Their hearts were moved. Their faith is shored up. But again, it's really only a glimpse. There's more to come. Well, where does that leave us? For us, maybe the transfiguration is not just for the heart and the will of Peter, James, and John. Maybe the transfiguration is for our heart and our will. We know Peter, James, and John must continue with Christ through the rest of his work of salvation. Calvary hasn't happened. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. They must stay with him. And maybe our transfigured hearts, by seeing the Christ in the transfiguration, by believing the transfiguration, the ever-present revelation of God, the ever-present healing the Lamb of God, and the King of Heaven reigning in glory, when we see that, maybe we will be spurred on to complete the work of the church in this world. We, too, can't stay at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. We must come down the mountain and still do the work that God has given us to do. They can't stay there. We can't stay there. God is revealed in Christ's glory, and our hearts must be changed by Christ's glory. We must go back into the world with transfigured hearts and wills. We have to continue to follow him and be his church in the world. The church must continue to preach the gospel. The church must have ministers serving those parts of the body of Christ that are the body of Christ and even those outside of the body of Christ. We must show others by our words and actions that this Christ at the top of the Mount of the Transfiguration is Christ the King. This work and witness must continue until we see him as eyewitnesses. And we're going to. We're going to die from this world and go to meet Jesus face to face. Or he, as King of glory, is going to come back and claim his church, at which time we're going to see him face to face. We will be the eyewitnesses. Face to face, reigning in heaven. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.